The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Hello, St. Louis listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker with the incomparable Ellie Wharton. And we are in tune. We are two-hour weekly broadcasts focusing and reflecting on issues that impact and connects our community in the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. Just about everything. Uh, just about everything. We're like the kitchen sink. That's correct. Mitch Cordova, who's from the Gateway Kite Club, and he's here to talk to us about kites. And before we get going on our discussion about kites, you know, I think it's appropriate that we do something. Oh, <clears throat> let's Go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring up through the atmosphere, up where the air is clear. Oh, let's go fly a kite. Now, we just played the Mary Poppins. Let's go fly a kite. Mitch, welcome to In Tune. We're glad Thank to have you, you here. Ma'am. So is that is that where the, the phrase go fly a kite came from? It could be. But I, it, I actually I actually know where that comes from. Okay. Well, good. It, was, it, it was first used in the middle eighteen hundreds and because kite flying was generally considered a leisure activity. To send somebody to go off to fly a kite was generally means go and do something inconsequential and harmless. Okay. So, you know, uh, stop doing serious things and just go amuse yourself. Kind of like go jump in a lake. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Kind be of, fun. but not exactly. So, yeah. But we're not talking about jumping in a lake today. We're talking no. about all things kite flying. And I was just amazed in just the brief conversation that uh, Mitch and I had before the show about all the different kinds of kites. You know, I, you know, I flew triangular kites and box kites when I was a kid. And had a lot of fun doing that. But, man, there's kite competitions. There's these combat kites. And I was like, holy smokes. And so we're going to just kind of cover the whole broad spectrum today. But first of all, who is Mitch Cordova? Well, I am a um, retired emergency physician a couple of years ago. I retired as a doctor. And I've been flying kites for a couple of decades now did it originally, just as you say, for relaxation and amusement. In fact, I used to get off of my shift. I was the night shift doctor at uh, the emergency department for many years. And I would get off uh, my shift at five o'clock in the morning. And just to let out some of that stress, I would fly a kite in the parking lot. But I very quickly got into kite fighting, which is a very exciting and broad field. And there's many different ways of doing it. And, and that's really what brought me into into the area, the arena of, of kite competition. Now, kite fighting, what, I can just imagine two kites in the sky attacking each other. Is that what that is? Well, uh, first of all, let me say that kite fighting is over a thousand years old as a sport. And so there are lots of branches of kite fighting. The way we play the game in the United States is called line touch. You have these two small, highly maneuverable single line kites that are flying maybe 30 or 40 feet off the ground, very close, very fast. The referee will call a top or bottom game. He'll just basically flip a coin. If it's a top game, if your line touches the top of your opponent's line, it's your point. 
If it's a bottom game, if your line touches the bottom of your opponent's uh, kite, then it's your point. If you force him to the ground, if you force his or her kite to the ground, it's your point. And you play to five points in a round-robin sort of competition. And that's, that's the way we play it in the United States. Okay. Well, but know- I, I've done kite fighting in, in, in India and, and Nepal, and they fly half a kilometer in the sky. I mean, the kites are just tiny dots. Wow. And they coat their string with broken ceramic or broken glass, so it's quite abrasive. And uh, they cut the string of their opponent's kite, and what you win is the kite. Hmm. You know, they fly often in the cities from the roof of their home. You might, uh, on a weekend, uh, stand on the roof of somebody's house in, in uh, northern India, and there'll be 600 kites in the sky. And then if you win, if you cut somebody's kite, They'll send their kids out into the street, and they go gather up that kite, and you win the kite. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that, yeah. that's fun. Now, you know, my husband my husband was from Guyana in um, South America. <laughs> I have to tell people that, oh, he's from Ghana. I know people from Africa, too. But no. <laughs> from Central America, South America. Yeah. They fought it the same way. Now, kite flying was huge in Guyana. Hmm. And they would go out over the ocean. And do the same thing, and they put little razor blades, little shards of glass and stuff on the kite, and it was a thing of trying to cut the other guy's string so that you could make their kite fly away. Of course, now it's over the ocean, so you didn't get to collect it. It's gone. But that was a huge thing, and especially around Easter break. That was the big time. Everybody came in from the country and would go to the city and bring their kites, and that's what they would do in Guyana. Well, we wanted to have Mitch on. Just a similar thing, you know, right around Easter time here. It's National Kite Month. April's National Kite Month. And there's a reason for that. That's, that's, that's right. correct. The spring winds. The spring that's right. winds the are spring always winds. best. Right. And, and we experienced that uh, late yesterday afternoon and early evening last night. Man, the winds came through like, like a train. Yeah. It was the, crazy. There are winds that I can't fly in. You know, we're at the bottom of the Mississippi Valley, and so we usually have very consistent, gentle winds. But when the winds come barreling through like that, I got nothing in my quiver that'll fly in 40-mile-an-hour winds. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the history of, of kites. It's just not something that's a European kind of thing. Matter of fact, it's probably not a European origin. I mean, we're going back probably 2000 B.C., 2500 B.C., maybe? Right. About I mean, the, f- the first historical uh, n- mention of kites is from about 400 B.C. Okay. So what does that make it 2500 years ago or so? I suspect that it was a popular activity before they started writing it down because most of the histories were military histories, and that was the context that they first mentioned these kites. And so kites were used to call for help. They were used in different colors to direct troop movements at a distance. In some cases, the story is, and we don't have much history, there's not much science behind this, but there are stories of raising people up in kites in order for them to spot troop movements in the locations of troops. Down the road, people started using kites um, to drop uh, incendiary devices, barrels of gunpowder or things that would set things on fire. In fact, there's a Thai history, well-documented Thai history of bombardments of, of uh, cities that they were um, attacking using kites. On a more scientific level, there's an amusing story about a, a Chinese general just about 200 BC who was besieging a walled city. Well, he couldn't break the walls. They were very thick and the defenders were very avid. And, and he wanted to dig a tunnel under the wall, but he didn't know how long to make the tunnel. 
So he had, he knew how tall the wall was because they had set up ladders against the wall to try to climb it and they were always pushed back. So he knew how tall the wall was, but he didn't know how long to make the tunnel. So he had somebody fly a kite over the wall and then he measured the length of the string and, you know, they knew geometry in China just the same right. as the Greeks right. did. And they were able to do the calculation to determine how far the start of the tunnel was from the wall uh, using math. And so there were lots of m- military uh, uses for, for uh, kites. See, kids, that's the importance of knowing mathematics. There you you have to know You have to know uh, your math. And, and it's interesting to show that no matter how, quote-unquote, primitive we think people have been. People have always been using very strategic methods to do things that now, how many of us would have been able to just take and and, and measure the string? You know, we'd have to have our ruler, we'd have to have our calculator to figure this out, we'd have to come up with all of these contraptions in order to do the calculations. And imagine that, thinking way back, what did you say, 2,500 years ago or so? They had already figured it out. I, I ought to say, though, that, that kites weren't only weapons of war. In fact, in, in some places, they were weapons of romance, if you will, if I can mix that metaphor. Sure. In Thailand, there's an old tradition where they assign genders to kites. And this is also a kind of kite fighting, but it's, it's sort of a gentle uh, kite fighting where there are big sort of bulky kites that are male kites, chulas, they're called, male kites. And then there are these very quick, rather small, delicate-looking female kites, pakpao kites. And they uh, have women on one team and men on the other team, and they draw a line between them. And the women have a way of hooking the men's kites, of ensnaring the men's kites and drawing them down on their side. And the men have ways of hooking the female kites and drawing them on their side. Uh, It all started with a romance story between some ancient king and, and his lover, but uh, it's all in good fun, I should say. And, and uh, these days, of course, you know, kites are, are more a matter of amusement than warfare. They are a matter of science, though. You know, I, mm-hmm. I worked with um, a guy from NASA who uses kites to do measurements, not just photography, but, but um, uh, infrared and other um, uh, wavelength measurements with kites. There are places where you can't use a drone if you were measuring the density of, say, butterfly populations. You couldn't fly a drone over that because the wind and the noise would would, uh, disrupt what you're trying to study. And so he's developed a system of kite photography and and other measurements that sort of copy the great explosion of kite technology in the late 1800s in order to use kites for science. Wow, and and more so than using, one would think for NASA you would use like a balloon or something like that. Kites well, tend to be a little bit. It, it's you don't have to carry around the gas with you and things like that. I, I can I can get a kite. I can pack up a kite that is uh, thirteen feet long and eight feet wide. I can pack that into uh, a cylinder that's maybe six inches across and three feet long. Put it in my backpack and have that lift uh, a camera or scientific equipment. And b- balloons aren't nearly as controllable as kites are. I, I can put a kite. Right on the dot. Wow, you know, and so and so. In fact, they're very useful. I, I should say that the diamond kite. In fact, it wasn't a triangular kite that you flew as a kid. It was diamond. a diamond right, kite. Right, right. And the person who really 
who really perfected the diamond kite was a guy named uh, William um, um, Abner Eddy. In the 1890s, people were really getting interested in atmospheric science. And this guy, William Eddy, needed to get instruments high up into the sky. They had hot air balloons, but they're big and they disrupted the winds and, and they were very expensive at the time. And what he did was he took that diamond, flat diamond kite, uh, which needed a big long tail that interfered with his equipment and so on, and learned that if he arched that kite, it would become stable and he could fly it without a tail. And that's called a bowed kite. There's a whole class of kites now called bowed kites mm. based on, on the eddy kite. And he made one that was 10 feet tall that could lift the first cameras. Now, in those days, this is 1894, the a camera was a huge, giant thing. Right. It must have weighed 10 pounds. Right. But his kites could easily whisk cameras and other atmospheric things up into the sky. And that was sort of the uh, beginning of uh, high atmospheric studies. And he got his kites up to 22,000 feet. <laughs> That's amazing, feet. isn't that? That's you know, I think about a kite, I think about, you know, maybe this big. A kite that's 13 feet tall, you know, that's just amazing. Yeah. Of course, those aren't the biggest ones. There's a class of kite, we should talk about single-line kites, but there, there's a class of single-line kite that doesn't require sticks. They're generically called soft kites. And the most common design is a parafoil, which is a series of hollow tubes that are connected side by side. Put together, they form an arch the way a wing forms an arch. And there's a huge lift surface. And I've seen these parafoil kites uh, that are uh, over 100 feet long and 150 feet deep that have such lift that you have to tie them to sand trucks in order to anchor them. You know, they back these sand trucks onto the beach to fly these big show kites. And there's no end of things you can lift with these big parafoils. That's crazy. Now, talk about the kind of kites that there are, because now you've really sparked my curiosity I'm ready to go out and buy one. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know what? I will make you one. Oh. I've got a sewing machine. The sky's the limit. I'll make you a kite that has... A sewing machine. That's right. I'll have one that has... And you'll have our logo on it and everything? Absolutely. Oh, now, boy. We fly that above the station here. I tell you. Just put it out. And and not to mention what we could do with it when we're at the parade, the Webster Groves parade at the end, tied to a truck and you know keep going and pull it behind. Oh, oh wait, Chris, Chris is he's going to get into the fray. No, you're you're because I'm a marketer and uh, <laughs> you know I've been to the beach. I'm from the East Coast, so I've been to the beach a lot. And you know these uh, uh, local businesses pay top dollar to have these uh, planes, airplanes dragging their banners along the beach. Yeah, I think you could make a lot of money with uh, promotional kites on the beach. Ooh, there you have it. Although I have to say that I, I've been making kites for oh, maybe a decade now, and and there have been various people, my wife especially, who suggest that I should uh, um, uh, sell my kites. I give a lot of them away because you can only keep so many in the basement. <laughs> That's and, right. <laughs> you haven't uh, been in my basement, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I have to say that there's no better way to ruin a good hobby than making it into a business. And so, yeah, Chris, yeah, I'll take true. your advice. That's true. Well, but you hire other people to do that. So you, that must be it. You know, and then you, that's right. You can and then, license it. That's right. License it. Get interns. Okay. We've got this all set up. All I'm we need glad. is a business plan. All we need is a beach. Plan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then we go to the beach. You're right. So what kind of kites are there? Okay. So let, let's divide kites into rough groups. Okay. There are single-lined kites, 
Now, single-line kites includes lots of shapes, uh, especially since the 70s and 80s in the United States. There was this explosion of creativity and artistry where people are applicating beautiful things and creating marvelous designs for these kites. So in single-line kites, there are fighter kites. The thing about fighter kites is that you attach the string to the middle of them. If a kite is flat or relatively flat, it's somewhat unstable. And the nose will point in one or another direction as the wind sort of spills off the sides. But if you pull on the middle and it arches back, it mm -hmm. becomes stable and shoots off in that direction. So the way that fighter kites work is they are unstable kites that when you pull on them become stable and directional. Hmm. And so there's all kinds of fighter kites. There's an old Japanese version of a fighter kite called rokaku. The Japanese are very, uh, in their naming process, they're very um, doctrinaire. So rokaku in Japanese means six sides. So how many sides do you think a rokaku kite has? It's got six, six, sides. six sides. It's a fighter kite. I, I make them, I fly them, and the rules are you can't have them bigger than eight feet. That, that's the American rules. But in Japan, they fly ones that are 12 and 15 feet. And, and every year in Shironi, Japan, there's a rokaku battle, the six-sided kite fighting thing, where the kites are 50 feet long. There's these immense bamboo and paper kites, and they fly them out over the bay. And the whole city divides into teams because a kite that large needs 50 or 60 people to fly it. They've got these giant ropes. So there are fighter kites. Some of them are little, little squares. Some of them are diamonds. Some of them are these six-sided kites, uh, you know, human creativity being what it is. Well, it kind of sounds like this is a team-building process if you really start to think about it because when you say the whole city gets involved, you've got to have that many people operating it. What a great way to build team and community. We might have to start that here in Webster. You've just given me an idea. Well, and you know, it's when people come together and they're even flying individual kites, it's such a sort of serene, almost meditative, uh, harmless uh, activity that uh, even when I'm standing on the field with a, a bunch of folks and there's little kids running around flying kites, it's it really is a community building activity. It's it you're outside in the sun. People have brought their families. It's it's um it's wonderful. So in any event, there's fighter kites, and then there are flat kites, and flat kites uh, are in the shapes of birds, and they're in the shapes of squares, and they usually you can identify them um, by the fact that they need large tails, because uh, flat kites are not stable in the sky. And so you stabilize them by hanging a tail behind. And in fact, there's a, some science, some people use tails, some people use these little buckets that look like, um, you know, they're called drogues. They look like a sea anchor. It's a little air-filled bucket. So they don't have a long tail to tangle up in electric lines. Now you take those flat kites and you tie a, a bow behind them or you develop some way that they arch back in both directions. And that's called a bowed kite. And there must be a hundred shapes and sizes of bowed kites. It's so creative. And people use bright colors and they applicate beautiful things on them. And they put them in different layers. There's, a, there's a, an interesting story about a, a guy in the 1800s. They had, this guy, Eddie, had really made bowed kites a big deal. There was, there was a guy named Alec Pearson. And 
he flew in London. He flew with a little club in London. The, his club was really no bigger than my club here in St. Louis. Gateway Kite Club, let me say this. That's the right. Gateway Club, we're on Facebook, Gateway Kite Club. Say um, it one more time. Gateway. <laughs> Shameless plug. On on uh, on Facebook, look up Gateway Kite Club, and it will tell you when we're meeting next and where we're flying a couple times a month. We fly a couple times a month when we're making and giving away kids' kites for them to decorate and build there in the field. So this guy, Alec Pearson, flew in the little pocket parks in London. I don't know if you've been to London. You may well have been. But there are lots of these parks that are just one block in width, you know, little pocket parks. And when you get past that, you're mixed up with buildings and you're over cars and roads and you don't want your string getting all tangled up with that stuff, electric lines. Well, he wanted to fly high, but he couldn't get enough distance at a low angle of climb to fly high enough. So he invented a kite called the Pearson's Roller, Alec Pearson's Roller Kite. And the roller comes from a German word, Rolloplan, which means um, Venetian blind. And he divided the sail into two parts. So the, so the kite takes off like a rocket. I have several of these if you guys want to come to Manchester tomorrow to Schroeder Park and see me fly these kites. Uh, it takes off like a rocket. It takes off right from the ground and flies almost directly over your head. So he could fly really high without tangling with the road on the far part of these pocket kites. Well, once he figured out how to divide the kite into two sails, the sky was the limit. And now we've got sails at different levels, and all these are bowed kites. I ought to say that there's box kites. Box kites uh, are used as lifters often. And uh, this guy, Hargrave, who invented the box kite, was um, lifting military equipment and people and, and things at the turn of the century, the 1900s. And these days, sometimes you see kites that are complex triangles or pyramids made of little subsections. Mm -hmm. Those are all versions of box kites. Mm -hmm. We call them cellular kites. Or I guess cellular box kites are a version of cellular kites since there are so many different forms these days. Then single-line kites also include soft kites. There's two kites that are so effortless to fly that if you have a kid and you want to get them a kite, there's several kites that I would recommend. I need to write this down. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for yourself, for right? Me, yeah. That's right. One is, is a delta kite. Delta kite. A delta kite looks like a long triangle. Uh, they always fly. They fly in light winds. They fly in strong winds. They're, so if you want a frustration-free afternoon teaching your kids to fly That's kites, right. exactly. get, get a delta kite. And the other are these parafoils or soft kites. They pack up. You can stick them into your back pocket. You can put them in your book bag. Just shake them out, put them in the wind, and they fly. And those are all single-line kites. We're listening to Mitch Cordover from the Gateway Kite Club, and he's talking to us about the history of kites and the kinds of kites, and we're going to get into some more about this because he's talking about Ellie's single line, so I imagine there's probably double-line kites. There, there may be even triple-line triple kites. And apparently in, in Japan there's quadruple-line kites, but there's if you have 50 people holding these big kites over the ocean. <clears throat> well, you've really got me excited now. I'm like ready to go right out and, and get <laughs> something. because, And that's going to be our next question during the, the break, after the break. Where can we really go get these kites? You know, because I could see this big rush on kites. And when is the best time to actually fly a, fly a and, kite? And the materials that make up the kites, you know. 
Ours were always this balsa wood and this cheap old paper stuff. <laughs> and what right. kind of string, you know, all that stuff like that. And Absolutely. how long should the tail be? And... Yeah, I have that question down here. Good, good, This is Arnold good. Stricker with Ellie Wharton. You're listening to In Tune. This is KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We're talking to Mitch Cordova from the Gateway Kite Club. And this is everything kites that you ever wanted to know. And, and even more. If, yeah, and more. And even if <laughs> and you even didn't, want, you to didn't want to know it, you're getting it because <laughs> this is fascinating. And we were talking off the air about a variety of things, but I want to kind of keep going with what we were talking about, the variety of kind of kites. Well, so we were, we were talking about single-line kites in, right. in all of their various forms. Uh, I ought to say that especially when my kite club or other kite clubs set up for uh, a celebration. Kites have always been big for celebrations. Uh, people have always flown kites in celebrations. And, and there are p- places in um, uh, Japan, China, South Asia, where the celebration is kite flying. But what we do is we have some of these big parafoils, these uh, series of uh, wing-shaped hollow tubes all sewn together. And because they have huge lifting power, we hang decorative things off of the string. We call it line laundry. And, and <laughs> you could dry your laundry that's on right, the That's right. I didn't have time to go to the laundromat. So. What's that hanging up there? Oh, okay. Well, just well, my laundry. <laughs> and, there, and there are people who sort of, for the sake of humor, make these decorative line laundry into pants and sure. ladies' oh, antique yeah. undies that are flying in the sky. <laughs> pantaloons. Pantaloons, exactly, pantaloons. Although we have, a, we're from Missouri, right? So we have cows and sheep and pigs. You know, we have little farms <laughs> set up sometimes. Where in, there's an ocean set up when we're on the beach where we have uh, cool. whales and all hanging line laundry. Let me say that... Single-line kites are not the only kinds of kites. There are two-line kites, dual-line kites, called sport kites. They look like uh, delta kites, uh, long uh, triangles uh, in the sky. Delta is the Greek triangle, the Greek letter delta, which looks like a wide triangle. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to put two lines on these delta kites, sport kites, and that gives you tremendous maneuverability. And as long as it's moving forward, you can stall it in the sky, you can zoom, you can do, you can dive toward the ground and then at the last minute zoom back up. And people form teams to do aerial ballet. And not only is it fun to see these things zooming around in the sky, sometimes we tie long ribbons to the back of them. And when we do loop-de-loops, the ribbons make spirals and other pretty things. We can get five or six people in the sky that are flying with one another, crossing one another and making forms. And so that's sport kites. And we Mm. teach people in my club, the Gateway Kite Club, teach people how to fly sport kites. So they would be holding a string in each fist? They have a fixed length string in Mm -hmm. each hand and a little handle. The way you uh, pull and manipulate those handles directs the kite. So rather than using a single line kite like a fighter kite where you're depending on the kite's direction... You choose the kite direction. Well, in the 1970s, people decide. Uh, this is an American invention, incidentally. They s- created four-line kites, quad kites, they're called. Uh, Revolution was the people that, uh, Revolution was the company that invented them. And so they're all generically called Revolution. That's not a, I have no, like uh, no economic. Exactly. <laughs> like Kleenex, like exa- elevator. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, um, uh, the generic name for these four-line kites is called a revolution kite. Revolution kites, because you can let air out the bottom, there's four lines. You have a stick in each hand and a, a line leading from the top and bottom of each stick going to the corners of this kite. And it flies like a helicopter. You can fly it upside down. You can fly it right side up. You can go sideways and backwards and forwards and top. And you can imagine what you can do in the sky flying either as an individual. In fact, there's a competition called aerial ballet. Or there's team ballet where people will play a tango and kites will be doing the tango together. Or they'll be making circles and the circles will be going around and exploding apart and coming back together again. It's really quite amazing. And we also have a little setup my team does. And we train people how to fly these four-line kites. And we have so many of them as a club that we get let people fly our four-line kite. It's, so it's two lines in each hand. Is it some kind of device that you're holding? You or? have a stick. It's, it's, it's not actually a stick. It's a, bent, it's a rather sophisticated-looking bent piece of um, carbon fiber or aluminum. And there's a string attached to the top and bottom of each of these sticks. So you have two lines in each hand. And if you want it to climb, you pull the top lines, and that puts on the gas. And if you want it to slow or stop, you pull on the bottom lines, the brakes, and it stops or even goes backwards. If you pull the top on one side, the bottom on the other side, the thing spins like a bicycle wheel. It's like an aerial marionette. That it is true. That's and I, you know, well and I, I was thinking about well you know when you were talking about the kite coming down and you could nosedive it and then pull it right back up. I used to try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine landed in mine, the grass. Yeah. Always drove it into the grass. Drove but... it right into the grass. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of flying the kite that day. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> in that regard, let me say a few safety tips about kites. Wait, I never thought about kites as being dangerous. Like <laughs> going to fly the kite is dangerous. Except for like line burns. You could get line burns, yes. that's true, especially flying bigger kites, putting a little bit of tape on your finger or wearing gloves if you're flying bigger kites mm-hmm. to keep from injuring your hand. But more than that, you want to, you don't want to tangle up or crash into electric lines. Yeah, that's kind of... Now, you sense. will not electrocute yourself. You will not electrocute yourself. But you will incur the wrath of the local electric company. <laughs> and you can, in fact, if you connect two lines together with a kite... You can short out an electrical system and start a fire. And so don't fly around electrical lines, if you please. The thing about flying in a thunderstorm, you can fly in the rain. It's not pleasant, and your kite gets pretty heavy. I've flown in the sprinkles many a time. But if there's lightning and thunder, it's not as though the kite attracts lightning and thunder. It doesn't. But you're all alone on a big, empty field. You are the tallest thing in that field. And a lightning doesn't have to hit you in order to injure you. If it hits the ground near you, you can also be injured. So don't fly near electrical lines. Don't fly in a thunderstorm. Just ask Ben Franklin. Yeah, I was going to say, I was thinking about <laughs> Ben Franklin. I was like, but Ben Franklin flew. Okay. Okay, let me tell the story of Ben Franklin. Is that is that too much of a diversion no, from no, guys? No, no, you go Let for me it. tell no. the story of Ben Franklin. I set you up for that. It's a thank you very much. (laughs) He is the king of Segway. I will tell you that. So So here's the thing about Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin had leather boots and he had wool carpets. And he noticed that when he walked across the room, this is in his diaries, when he walked across the room in his leather boots and reached for a brass doorknob, he would get a little shock. He could see a little arc of static electricity. That's right. They didn't call it static electricity. But he could see a little spark when he did that. It was his theory, he was really a very active mind, it was his theory that lightning was a version of that, of what we currently call static electricity. Now, nobody knows whether he actually did this or if it was a thought experiment. The details of this experiment are this. 
he was going to fly a kite during a thunderstorm up into the clouds. It would have a wet cotton string because the cotton string would get wet. He would have a piece of silk hanging from the string with a key at the end of it, and he would be hiding in the in a dry place. And his theory was that if he was right about this being static electricity, he could hold his finger near the key and he would get a little spark the way he does when he walked across the room with his leather boots. So he was not uh, hoping to be struck by lightning and he wasn't playing to get his kite struck by lightning. I would recommend highly against any of those things. He was trying to gather static electricity in the clouds to make a spark against this key the same as he did against the doorknob. There you go. That's the now story. we know. That's right. Just don't stand under a tree either. <laughs> that right. is because, very because true. Because if the tree gets hit by lightning. Right. That's right. <laughs> and comes in through the ground, there That's you right. are. You're toast. There's, actually, I should say that Franklin County, just recently, we did a fly for Franklin County. One of the things that my kite club does is that if a county or organization, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the county organization, uh, the, a park, the park system, if they're having some sort of event, we come in and we set up banners and flags and all this ground display. Anything that blows by the wind, you know, is, is in our purview. So we have flags and colorful banners and stuff, and we fly things in the sky to decorate things up. Franklin County, because it was named after Benjamin Franklin, just had its 200-year anniversary. Oh, wow. And they had a local shop make kites celebrating this Ben Franklin experiment with the key, they made these stainless steel kites that different companies could decorate and put on the outside of their building. And I think there's a thing where if a kid gets so many checks off, so many seeing so many of these steel kites, something happens. One of the local artists painted the kite for the Shaw Nature Reserve, and she gave me a picture of that wonderful piece of wildlife illustration, of botanical illustration that she painted on the stainless steel kite. I had it made into a kite and she's now flying that kite. So there is virtually no decoration or no painting that you can't transfer onto ripstop nylon mm -hmm. and make into a kite. Flying it as a stainless steel kite, probably not so much. But Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a tough one to get that sucker up in the air. <laughs> stainless yeah. steel, what a... Which, which leads me, to, so you're talking about nylon being the, I guess, maybe preferred cloth. We always, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, we'd buy those, uh, they were probably like a 99 cent kite rolled up. It was balsa wood with paper. Right. And, you know, you'd have the cuts and you'd do all that stuff and you'd just go out and buy some string and then you'd get some old rags for a tail. Sure. And that's Bob's what we So what's, what's a typical kite? Because we talked about bamboo. I'm sure there's probably some kind of uh, plastic kinds of things, but what's... What's the best way to go about? Well, let, let me say I don't want to poo-poo poop, poop, uh, paper kites. Uh, people still do make paper kites, and in fact, the Japanese have a kind of paper called washi paper mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. famous for kites. If you wanted to uh, put spray a little bit of of um, the spray on lacquer onto newspaper to toughen it up a bit, newspaper works great for kites. Wow. Paper is light; it's relatively windproof if you coat it, and it, and it works good. People do, especially Japanese kites, are still made of, of uh, and Southeast Asian kites are still made of, of bamboo and paper. But most kites these days that you buy in the dollar store or expensive kites that you make or buy are made of either ripstop nylon, 
ripstop polyester, which is uh, rather expensive but highly preferred, or sheet plastic. You can make excellent kites out of uh, the kind of plastic bags you get at uh, Schnucks and Deerberg's, hmm. and, you know, Whole Foods. Or they seem to blow away pretty much across the, <laughs> yeah. the parking oh, yeah. lot. Let them go and they'll prove how <laughs> they well go, they fly they? as kites. And so what do you use to stretch these kites? Well, in the high-end kites, we use carbon fiber tubes, but they make plastic ones and, and um, um, fiberglass ones. And certainly the dowels that you buy at the hardware store, mm-hmm. the, the quarter-inch mm-hmm. or uh, three-sixteenth-inch dowels, perfectly good for making. You want to uh, teach your kids how to make kites. The string you get, you know, lightweight, you can, you can go to the dollar store and buy string called kite string, which is light and pretty strong and extremely inexpensive. And uh, a couple of dowels and paper and scotch tape or white glue makes a perfectly acceptable kite. Scotch tape and a plastic bag, excellent kite material. Higher, as you move up the scale, you move into ripstop nylon, which is the most commonly used fabric. Uh, were like uh, skins, really thin skins, like that would be used, like like cat gut for like a uh, sausage, used or stretched across uh, at one time. You know there are uh, folk cultures all over the world. You can't call them preliterate cultures because there's really nobody that hasn't been touched by mm-hmm. you know the Western civilization. But there are still uh, small village folk cultures that are making kites for the same practical reasons that we use, you know, drones and stuff. So there are people in, on the islands that are using leaves, stitching together leaves, and fishing with kites. They can get their fishing lines out past the reef uh, mm. by flying, the line, flying a, a kite like that. And I've never seen one made of hide, but I have seen them made of bird feathers, where people have wow. uh, tarred bird feathers uh, uh, into um, – uh, a frame made of bamboo or wood. I've never seen one made of skin, but that's an interesting idea. Are there different kinds of line, kind of like when if you were fishing, different strengths for you know, however many pound, pound line, five pound, ten pound line? Are there different strengths the, of line like that too? There are. You can imagine that you would, uh, the sort of larger kites that, that I like to fly, mm-hmm. you can imagine you wouldn't f- fly them on cheap cotton line. So yes, for fighter kites, people often fly on on fishing line, you know, this uh, sort of flexible Mm -hmm. uh, fly fishing line. The most common and preferred kind of flying line is made of a Dacron, and it's woven Dacron line, twisted Dacron line, works perfectly well, and that's what you would buy in the dollar store or Mm -hmm. the five and dime. And lines come in various strengths, but until you're really pulling hard on a kite, the average person who's going out and flying a delta kite or a sled kite or one of these box kites, they don't really have to worry about the kite pulling hard enough to break string. Nylon line, which is great for you know laying out concrete, is terrible flying line. Hmm. So all you folks out there, it's very stretchy. And nylon absorbs water. So if you're on a damp day, as every day in the summertime is here in the Mississippi Valley, mm-hmm. Um, the line gets heavier and heavier as the day goes on. It gets stretchier and stretchier. But this Dacron line doesn't stretch. It doesn't. So now here's an interesting thing. In the late 90s, there was um, an advance in material science. And they started pre-stretching a kind of polyethylene. And that makes anchor chains that are as big as your thumb. You can get something that is twice the strength of steel, a plastic line that's twice the strength of steel, you know, probably a hundredth of the weight, 
but a tenth of the diameter. And wow. when we fly big, I have, you know, 200 pound line that I fly these larger kites on. I don't want them to snap the right. line and disappear. They're expensive. They're hard to make and expensive to buy. But it's as big as a uh, little larger than a uh, pencil lead. It's the, it's the size of, um, of an old-fashioned ballpoint pen refill. So do you have like a, a real yeah, called Dyneema. That's called that stuff is called Dyneema. Okay. And it's a Dyneema. Okay. Dyneema line. So if you wanted very light, very strong, stretch proof thing that never breaks, then Dyneema line is what you would buy. Do you have a, a reel? Because I remember as a kid you would <clears throat> have man, you'd just wind it back around the ball or something, or you'd have yeah, yeah. this cardboard thing you're flipping like this to reel the kite in. Do you have a like a rod and not a rod and reel, but for lack of better words a rod and reel. <laughs> you, you could almost, I would think, use like a rod and reel kind of setup. And, and there are some people that, in fact, use these big ocean tuna reels right. that actually wind them up on a trail. Right. It's interesting, just as kite flying has a, a broad range of international traditions, flying reels come in a dozen different forms. Ones that I like to use look like a little barrel with a stick that comes out of each side. And when you pull down the kite, you, you shouldn't be winding it on the reel as you pull it down because it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and it'll break the reel. What you do is you pull down the kite, you make a little pile on the ground, and then you step over one foot and you make a second little pile on the ground. You don't want a big giant you know, bird's nest. So I make a series of little piles on the ground. And the way you use these, these uh, reels, the ones that have sticks on the end, is you set one stick in the crook of your elbow and you spin it with the other side. You spin it with the stick on the other side and it just winds it up. Hmm. Now here's an interesting variation of that. When I was flying in Nepal, there are no nice grassy fields up in the hills. You know, it's very rasty. There's rocks and bushes and you know, snakes. There's all kinds of stuff on the ground. And you don't want your line laying on the ground because it gets all tangled with that stuff. They have a kind of reel. The heart of that reel is maybe six or eight inches across. It's a great big bulky thing, but you can wind up the kite by rotating the reel. It winds directly onto the reel, and when you let it go, it winds directly off the wow. reel. In the United States, the most common thing is what they call a halo reel. It's like sort of a hula hoop with a little track in the middle of it, and every turn is about 18 inches of string, so you can very quickly wind your string around this little hula hoop hmm. and uh, that's called a hoop winder interesting uh, that may be more detailed than you want but it's no. sort of interesting the way the different traditions work in uh, thailand and uh, vietnam and and uh, myanmar is called burma kites are kind of status symbol hmm. and in fact they put hummers you know how most people they want their kites to be quiet it's sort of a quiet afternoon it's a very meditative sort of relaxing thing but when kites are a matter of showing off they put little, they'll put a bow, a bowed piece of bamboo in the front of their kite and stretch a string across the front of it so that it hums loudly when it flies to show people where their kite is. Interesting. Oh, I think that when I was a kid, the kind of kite that you flew was a little bit of a status symbol. So I can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. You, know, and you they wanted to have a better kite and prettier and things like that. Well, yeah, they the Jolly have, Roger. They, <laughs> they have winders that are these giant formed bamboo winders at the end of a great stick that they can sort of wind with one finger. 
And the bigger the winder, the higher the status. You know, I mean, they've got them that are just r- as big as your head. You know, they're just ridiculous. But they're beautifully made, and, and they do wind the string. And so... I, now, you guys have some activities coming up soon, like tomorrow, right? <laughs> that could yes, be much sooner than that. <laughs> yeah. For example, yes. The, at uh, Schroeder Park uh, in Manchester, which is uh, just south of Manchester Road, uh, just west of 141. Uh, Schroeder Park is a beautiful park. It's got a great big field. They have an Arbor Day celebration. They'll be giving away free trees and so on. And I think that they'll be having kites for kids. They buy these little kite kits made of a material called Tyvek. Tyvek mm-hmm. is a plastic-coated paper that they wrap houses in. Mm-hmm. Well, you can make a very light Tyvek that makes a terrific kite. Mm-hmm. And they uh, set up some tables, and the kids decorate the kites with the crayons and markers, and they make them up into kites, and they go out in the field, and we in the club help them get aloft. Cool. Uh, incidentally, a tail of a kite should be five times the length of the kite. That's one of the questions I had here. What go. is the length so of the So we ta- help them make some tails. To, these kites will fly pretty well without tails. Okay. And so that's tomorrow at Schroeder Park. Uh, um, the, they go from nine till two. I think we're flying from 10 till two when the kite field is free. Now, let me just ask you that. Is there a better time of day to fly a kite? Mm-hmm. In this area, there is. From late morning, say about 9 o'clock, until maybe 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the winds really pick up. And in this area, the winds die down around 4-ish. And so flying after 4, it has to be a pretty windy day to fly after 4. And here's another interesting little science thing. I know I don't have much time, but here's a little interesting science thing. There's two layers of wind. There's a ground wind and then a little thermal layer that separates the ground wind from the upper wind. The upper wind is where the real fun happens. That's really where the stronger wind is. In fact, it's sometimes in a different direction. Your kite will fly up in this direction, and then it'll start flying really well, but in a different direction because the upper level wind is Mm. higher. And that thermal barrier breaks down around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. And so the upper level winds lose their power then. Great place to go fly kites, Art Hill. You always see people out there. Yes, you do. Yes. The Chesterfield Athletic Complex, a great place. Mm -hmm. Um, Schroeder Park is a good place. There's a baseball field at Forest Park. So, folks, we want you to get out, enjoy the weather. And what a great way to do this by flying a kite. You don't have to invest a lot of money. You can even make your own kite. Just go to the Gateway Kite Club Facebook page. They can they have some information there. It's in three dimensions. You're outdoors and in three dimensions. You can't do it on a screen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we're going to post that information uh, when we finish posting this Facebook page page. We're going to post all of that so that people can find it. Yeah, there's kite-making pages out there, but uh, you want to get in tune with that because you're in tune with our show. And this has been Mitch Cordova from the Gateway Kite Club. Mitch, thanks for coming on today. You're listening to Arnold Stricker and Ellie Wharton of In Tune. This is KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri.